Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. This is Dre, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Wesley Bell, who's running to be the county prosecutor in St. Louis County. We also joined by Joseph Opaku, who is one of the VPs at Lyft. The reality is that Lyft is providing a significant amount of service in communities of color and outer boroughs. So those are the neighborhoods that are going to get hit the hardest by having a cap on our service. And we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as usual. So before we jump in, the, the message this week, I was talking to a group of teachers not too uh, too long ago, and what I said to them is something that I that I really believe. This notion that like what the best teachers do, and I've said this before, I think on the pod is that what the best teachers do is that they know uh, that the students already had the gift before the teacher walked into the room, and that their role is to actually make sure that the gift is always present, along after the teacher's gone. That what the worst teachers do is to make people believe that the the gift is only present in their presence. And I say that because I've thought about that a lot and what it means to lead teams, what it means to be on teams, what it means to be an activist and an organizer, is that part of what we do is help people find the gift inside of them. And what made me start thinking about that phrase was teaching was really hard, the hardest thing I've ever done. And every day was like some sort of failure. It was like one student I like didn't reach like I wanted to, or there was like something that I wasn't as prepared or da-da-da, and I had to just come back the next day. Any teacher listening knows that it's just like hard. And what I started to remind myself is that any day that was like that was still bad at the end that I was just like, oh, this was not good, is that my job was to find the gift that I just hadn't found the gift yet. And in our work, like what we do is help people find the gift inside themselves. And then we work to find gifts uh, that we can use to make the world better at the system and structural level. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Uh, DeRay, a little birdie told me that Publishers Weekly put your book on a list as one of the most anticipated books of the fall, which is very exciting. Boom, boom, boom. It is. I saw that and I was like, yes. And the book is called On the Other Side of Freedom. <laughs> Comes out on September 4th. How's it going? Are you are you ready for the are you ready for the tour? I am. You know, it's like it was hard enough to write the book. It is even it's sort of like <laughs> we know it's wilder to like have it be out in the open. I mean, you just got a you just got an advanced copy. It's like sort of this thing now exists, you know, and like I spent so much time writing it and reflecting and like trying to do justice to what, what you and I went through and those stories and all of our experiences and where we go from here. And yeah, so it's like you put something out in the world and, and I can't like t- I can't edit it. I can't change it anymore. It's like it is a thing now. So um, it's real. Well, and I've, you know, I haven't finished the whole thing, but everything in here definitely happened. (laughs) Um, And it is uh, something to learn from. So some of the memories were a little too raw, but I'm very excited that the world finally gets to gets to read this very soon. People can pre-order at DeRay.com and a portion of the proceeds goes to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Not the same thing as the NAACP, though people get that confused. Uh, The NAACP Legal Defense Fund is a law-based organization that helps protect Mm -hmm. our rights in the courts. And Brittany, I will see you on the tour, won't I? Because we need you to be giving this wisdom to the people, whether they came to talk about my book or not. It's all the same work. I'm here to help as I can, and I'm looking forward to it. Sam, as a side note, I just want to compliment you because you've only recently gotten on Instagram, but your Instagram is popping. And I'd be looking at my own Instagram like, man, I really need to get my stuff together. Brittany, get like Sam. It's like you just came in later than everybody and then showed all of us up. So You know, I've been sitting on all Sam these ideas the watching everybody else's Instagram explode. So it's my time. <laughs> You've been saving ideas in the notes section time. of this phone. <laughs> Did any of you read the Wild McDonald's story? 
I heard about it. I read a little bit of it, but remind us what happened. Essentially, the McDonald's Monopoly game, there was it was impossible for you to win. Which I never win. By design. Yeah, nobody won, actually, because the guy who was responsible for the security of the winning pieces, he was stealing them <laughs> and giving to, them to his friends and people he knew. And he got caught. Mm. And it was this incredible expose or sort of write-up on it. Not really expose because he'd already been convicted by then. Um, and the Daily Beast had just came out. So if you've not read it, you should read it. But the game was literally, it was just like impossible for you to win. Imagine how many french fries mm. quarter pounders mm. double cheeseburgers mm. like <laughs> smoothies mm. apple pies got eaten with folks thinking <laughs> i just one need more. one more piece but there's no more piece for you to have you know Dang. why because the money's already been taken <laughs> uncle jerry got the money before you could get it So there was some great reporting this past week done by the Marshall Project in New York Magazine um, on the impact that this administration's immigration policy has on undocumented folks living specifically in New York City. And it's estimated that half a million New Yorkers are undocumented. And, and as we know, these people come from you know, across the world seeking the same things that brought immigrants here for generations. It's safety for their families, it's academic and work opportunities, it's religious freedom and all things things like that. And, and what's happened is that uh, people who are otherwise living their lives, running their businesses, taking care of their families, have found themselves under the threat of our immigration system in a way that they haven't before. So, you know, some of the examples that they give in the story, it's like, you know, there's an Ecuadorian man who gets arrested while delivering pizza in Brooklyn, or there's a Chinese father of two who's detained during an interview to become a legal permanent resident. Uh, and ICE has been going to courthouses and neighborhoods and, and sometimes even churches, according to advocacy groups. And this is really creating widespread panic throughout New York City. And what's interesting is that in the eight months after Trump's inauguration, ICE arrest in the New York area jumped by 67% compared to the same time in the previous year. An arrest of immigrants with no criminal convictions at all increased by 225%. Uh, and the good news is that New York has invested $30 million in free legal assistance um, from the mayor's office. And that's a good thing because we we know all the data and the social science that shows us how much less likely someone is to be uh, actually deported if they have legal representation. Um, and so often the case is that throughout the country, people don't have legal representation. Uh, but still, you know, even though uh, more and more folks are getting the representation they need to, to, to sort of hold off, at the very least, hold off deportation, so many more folks are getting deported and rounded up. And, and the immigration crackdown more generally has instilled this new level of fear in the city and, and immigrants, again, who didn't consider themselves to be at risk um, for deportation because they didn't have criminal records are now feeling themselves uh, under threat. And, and and what the story with the Marshall Project in New York Magazine does especially well, I think, is just is humanized. They have a hundred different stories of a hundred different people um, who have been impacted by this. So they have a woman who was on her way back from her honeymoon in Niagara Falls and was a, and ICE agents got on the bus and, and arrested her and told her that she was going to be deported within two weeks. You have a man who was fleeing prosecution in Nigeria for being part of the LGBTQ community and for his work on behalf of that community. And he arrived at JFK and told immigration officers that he was fearful for his life. And then they put him in handcuffs. And so part of what we've seen over the last several weeks and months is that even the folks who are attempting to seek asylum through the legal means of doing so at the ports of entry by telling immigration officers upon their arrival in the U.S., even those folks are being threatened and deported in, in profound ways. So it was just some really humanizing reporting, I, I thought, and, and I definitely recommend folks go check that article out. You know, I'm glad you brought this up, Clint. Uh, my news is actually related to the humanity of this all. I know that because we've had subsequent court rulings that um, stopped the Trump policies on family separation. A lot of us have moved on to other news. But the fact of the matter is this is not over. This is not over for the people um, who uh, were identified in this report. This was, is not over for the people that you just described who have told their stories. It's certainly not over for a young girl who is being identified only as DL uh, and her family. DL is only six years old and uh, is considered to be of tender age, as the language that this administration is using suggests. She was separated from her family, held in a facility. Her father, who was undocumented, was in California. Her mother was held in a separate facility. They crossed together. DL, the six-year-old, 
was abused sexually, not once, but twice by someone who is, remains unidentified. The organization, the nonprofit that runs this particular detention center, Southwest Key, notified her father after the first time. And as they worked to get in touch, they then had to call her father back and tell him that she was touched a second time. What they did to solve this was not to remove the abuser, was not to reunite this young woman with her family immediately, but rather it was actually to have her, at the age of six, sign a document that included what had happened to her and included a commitment from her to stay away from her abuser. Let me say that one more time. At six years old, she was made to sign a document that said she promised to stay away from the person who abused her. Thanks to Families Belong Together, this family is now reunited, the mother, the daughter, and the father. Because of the kind of contact that the father had via phone um, with the daughter while she was still in the detention facility, she more immediately warmed to him. But She's still having trouble reconnecting with her mother and even recognizing that her mother is, in fact, her mother and not another staff member at the detention facility. Her parents said she's still unable to be touched, even in loving ways, by her own family. Um, and her mother is quoted as saying she operates as if she's still programmed that she wakes up, she eats, and she bathes and operates as if she's still in the detention center. And all of what you shared, Clint, and this horrifying story is a reminder that we will be paying the cost of this travesty that was carried out by this administration for years to come. The families that were separated, the people who were detained, the children that have suffered, the families that still don't know what is going to happen to them and what their fates will be, they're still dealing with this. And we need to continue to keep this conversation in the front of our minds, on the front of our mouths. We need to continue to support organizations like Families Belong Together and make sure that the shame and stain of this does not wash away from this administration. We've been talking about immigration. We, as in the country, has been talking about immigration for for the past couple uh, weeks. Uh, the first is the good news is that a judge most recently struck down Section thirteen seventy three, which was a part of a law that mandated local governments to share the immigration status of individuals with the federal government. Section 1373, as it's known, was used by Jeff Sessions to uh, deem uh, sanctuary cities illegal, that it would have required and penalized sanctuary cities uh, for not participating and cooperating with ICE. It was this specific case came uh, in light of Chicago Luckily, a judge said that that was unconstitutional and that the federal government doesn't have the power to do that and Sessions can't do that any longer. The other thing, and we covered this a, a bit ago when we had an episode about Suffolk County and ICE being called by the school system, is a reminder that immigration judges are actually appointed by the attorney general and uh, are a component of the Department of Justice. So the immigration court system is not one of the courts that is created by the Constitution. It is created by the federal government. And the problem with that, there are a lot of problems with that, but one of them is that immigration judges can't hold federal prosecutors in contempt of court because the judges are considered uh, to be essentially working for the Department of Justice, so they're their colleagues, so that's sort of hard. They're just not in an independent court system, so they work at the discretion of the attorney general. The attorney general sets the rules and the processes, determines the procedures for how everything works, and you see the damage that that brings when you look at this attorney general. And way back in 2014, I guess not way back, but four years ago in 2014, uh, the National Association of Immigration Judges called on Congress to separate the immigration courts from the Department of Justice so that there actually could be an independent court system that's not tied to an enforcement agency because their whole push was that the enforcement part should be different from the adjudication part. And I wholeheartedly agree. It makes no sense that the people whose whole job is to enforce also get to determine the rules for adjudication. Brittany, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the, the article you shared and something I've been thinking a lot about sort of generally around this entire ordeal with our immigration system is how, how a sort of frightening childhood experience that ends up being harmless can have this like really lasting and profound impact on your life. So for example, I remember when I was six and, 
and I was at Disney World with my grandparents and I got lost and and couldn't find them. And this lasted maybe about five minutes. Um, and, and, you know, I ultimately found, I like stood by the same pole lamppost where we were and, and they ultimately found me. But I remember being so scared. I remember just a fear I had never felt before. I, you know, and I, I went to the place that I think a lot of kids go, like, I'm never going to see my family again. What's going to happen to me? Somebody's going to take me. And that memory has stayed with me for my entire life, right? It ended up being fine. They had just, we gotten lost in the crowd, but it stayed with me forever. And and to be clear, I'm not comparing that experience to what these kids are experiencing by any means, but it is, but it is to say that even the most innocuous experience like that um, stays with you for so long. And so when I think about these kids being stripped from their parents for weeks and months and, and the uncertainty that's tied to that, uh, it's, it's a trauma that is going to stay with these young people for, for so long in ways that, that we won't even begin to understand for, for a long time. And, and I really, um, that is one of the most unsettling parts of this for me. So my news is about police surveillance. The ACLU of Tennessee uh, recently filed a lawsuit against the Memphis Police Department, accusing the department of spying on local protesters in violation of a consent decree. So just to give you some historical background, the Memphis Police Department has been under a consent decree uh, since 1978 when they were accused of similarly spying on civil rights activists going all the way back to 1968 when they were found to have spied on Martin Luther King uh, Jr. as he was in the city advocating on behalf of sanitation workers. Fast forward to today, and we learn from this uh, lawsuit filed by the ACLU and the information and evidence that they've acquired and obtained, we find that the Memphis Police Department created a list, a city hall escort list at the direction of the mayor of Memphis that contained the names of a number of uh, local activists uh, that were involved in protesting against police violence, as well as people that they have associated with, uh, people that they have uh, connected with on social media, people who were seen at protests. And we also learned that the police department, in addition to creating this sort of list of people that were flagged uh, and would have extra scrutiny uh, going into City Hall, they also created a this huge surveillance apparatus that went far beyond Memphis, uh, but that collected information on uh, activists across the country within the Black Lives Matter movement, people who are protesting against police violence, a list that included... Uh, quote, any of the organizations that arose out of Ferguson or that were part of the Black Lives Matter network. So people all across the country, probably we were on the list. I don't know who was on the list, but a whole lot of people were on the list. And they collect information about where protests were going to take place, uh, who might be attending them, uh, groups uh, online and offline that were organizing against police violence. Uh, And then not only did the Memphis Police Department collect the information, uh, but they were providing regular what they call joint intelligence briefings uh, to the Department of Justice, uh, the U.S. military, uh, the Tennessee Department of Homeland Security, and a variety of other uh, local, uh, state, and federal law enforcement agencies uh, sh- sharing intelligence about the activities of black protesters across the country. They created dummy social media accounts to surveil people and get access to people who had private accounts, uh, use social media collator software uh, to easily monitor open source data and other social media uh, activities around particular subjects, uh, and even sent... Uh, undercover and plainclothes police officers uh, to monitor uh, black folks at church, uh, folks who were attending memorial services, uh, people who were having family gatherings, a food truck festival. So this extensive surveillance uh, network uh, and operation was being conducted for years now uh, by the Memphis Police Department uh, of all places uh, that really had national implications. So you know, I bring this up not only because you know, as folks who've been involved in this work, it affects us personally, and we uh, have been, you know, subjected to surveillance and, you know, intimidation by folks uh, affiliated with uh, law enforcement agencies. But uh, just to, to illustrate the, the depth at which uh, this really goes, and that just a, a sort of a random police department uh, could compile all of this and then send this to national law enforcement agencies uh, that you know, that is something that is really scary. And uh, I think it needs to be talked about and needs to, and folks need to be held accountable for. Sam, I'm, 
you do know some of the people who are on the list because it's probably us. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm laughing only because I am um, continuously floored by how much history seems to repeat itself when we refuse to face it. We know that these are the kinds of lists that have existed whenever people of color and marginalized people have dared to stand up for ourselves, have ever had the audacity to fight for our own freedom or equity. We know that plenty of our heroes were on exactly these kinds of lists, and plenty of our modern-day heroes are on the current lists. And I think it's important to say that out loud, irrespective of what might come, because oppression thrives on silence. If we sit here and pretend like we are not the very people that are often subject to this, then that helps oppression win. Oppression depends on secrecy in order to function. So we have to call out those things that are happening behind the scenes in order to intimidate and harass people uh, and convince people that doing the right thing is wrong uh, in order to actually help it come to an end. When I think about Memphis in particular, I think about my friends who have been on the front lines there, people like Earl Fisher and my friend Tammy Sawyer, who are some of the leaders of Take Em Down 901. That was the organization that got the Confederate monuments removed in Memphis. I remember there was actually a resolution that was passed by the State House of Representatives to honor Tammy and a few other women on the occasion of the anniversary of their sorority. And in Tammy's case, uh, once the Republican lawmakers in Tennessee figured out exactly who she was and what she had done, they actually rescinded that resolution. Um, and so Memphis in particular is a place that uh, we may not always think of as a hotbed of racism, and yet it is still the place where Dr. King was assassinated. And Memphis, just like every other city across this country, Country, uh, continues to be bound by systems of oppression and white supremacy that do not want any challenge. And because they don't want any challenge, we can expect the surveillance, we can expect the intimidation, we can expect the harassment, we can expect the following. Unfortunately, that's the cost of doing business when you are in freedom work, and it absolutely shouldn't be. And as a writer, I think about this a lot as well in that it is not only those who sort of identify themselves as activists, not obviously that being an activist and being a writer are mutually exclusive because we know that that's not true. But but I think about, um, you know, we talk a lot about how the the FBI had surveillance on, on Dr. King for, for many years of his life, which is obviously true and, and obviously needs to be talked about. But the FBI also had uh, an 1,800-page file on James Baldwin. You know, they also had like hundreds of pages on Richard Wright. They also had hundreds of pages on on Ralph Ellis, right? So, so I think it, it is important to remember that the surveillance state and the state is is not concerning themselves with people who are doing this work at sort of every facet of the sort of cultural and social and political landscape, right? Like they are they are worried about the activists, they are worried about the the writers, they are worried about the artists, the web of of surveillance is is extensive and and I you know I'm I'm glad this reporting exists and and illuminates what's been happening in Memphis and and I would not be surprised at all if more stories like this continue to come out from other cities and other jurisdictions and and you know one day that we we find that the that even in this moment the 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 web of of entanglement of of folks who've been um, surveilled and and who have files on them by the FBI is is far wider than. Um, than even some of us might might anticipate. The FBI visited my house. The FBI visited <laughs> Sam's wrong address. I, I was surveilled in Baltimore and was deemed uh, the highest risk <laughs> of a threat by one of the social media companies at the Baltimore City Police Department. The police used to follow my family home in St. Louis County. Well, definitely. St. Louis is like a whole different beast. In St. Louis, the police were... <laughs> Just everybody. They followed all of us there. Everybody. Um, but, you know, it's so interesting. One of the things that this, uh, the lawsuit sort of references and that the article references, Sam, is how Memphis uses Skycop, which is a aerial surveillance company, that there are all these cameras across the city that the police can actually look at from their iPad or from their cars or from computers. 
And it paints this picture that like community is actually raising money to install these cameras because things are out of control. And because things are out of control, they need more surveillance and more accountability. And I'm always shocked that these calls for accountability actually don't ever uh, fall on the police themselves. That everybody should be hyper accountable. Everybody should have, like everybody in community should have every sort of rule and surveillance and, and tactic to make sure the wrongdoing doesn't happen. The moment you start saying that anything about accountability with the police, people act like you're speaking in a foreign language. And let's just go over Memphis for a second. In Memphis, you cannot anonymously file a complaint against a police officer. You have to sign a sworn affidavit. Discipline can be overturned by arbitration. Complaints that aren't sustained aren't kept in employees' file. And you might wonder, why does that matter? So we know that only one in 12 complaints against officers are ever sustained in the first place. One in 13. One in 13, see? Even worse. We know that it matters that we know the allegations made against officers. And you might say, oh, well, we should just get rid of complaints that weren't substantiated. Then we would say extend that to the public. Every time somebody's like charged with something and they're not convicted or... or it's overturned, then we should just automatically, the system should just automatically expunge people's records. But that's not what happens. There's still a record that there was a charge. It's still a record that there was arrest. That stuff isn't automatically just deleted. But for the police, that stuff is deleted in Memphis. The use of force policy doesn't ban chokeholds. The police aren't required to intervene when they see their partner doing something wrong. And they're not even wholly prohibited from shooting into vehicles. So like, you see Memphis talking about they need to hold people in communities more accountable. It's like the Memphis Police Department is not accountable at all. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. 
Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom! An official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. I'm going to talk about Obama phones, as they are sometimes colloquially called. It's known as a SafeLink or Lifeline program run by the FCC. A long time ago, in an early episode, we had Mignon Clyburn, who was an FCC commissioner. We had her on to talk about the FCC and what's going on. But what those phones are most normally known for is that they've been a branded Obama phones because there was this idea from the Republicans to rebrand it as if... Obama was just giving out phones to people on welfare who weren't working and blah, blah, blah. The reality is that the program was started by uh, under a Republican president, and it actually isn't your tax dollars that's being used to fund the subsidies for the phones. It is actually on your phone bill. There's like a universal uh, service fee, and it's the aggregate of those fees that go to it. But either way, what the fund provides is phones uh, with a limited amount of minutes for people in low-income situations or qualify for government assistance. So that's sort of like the big picture. The Trump administration is trying to severely cut back on the program, one, by making it so only the big providers can administer it. So like the Verizon's, AT&T, Sprint's, which would cut out all of the resellers. So any of the prepaid cell phones, things like that. 70% of the people who currently participate in phones from the program are using prepaid phones. The FCC has already cut subsidies to tribal lands. But what I didn't know in my news for this week is about the relationship between these phones and domestic violence. And it seems so obvious now that I have learned more about it. But one of the things that I now know is that 99% of the people who suffer from domestic abuse also suffer from some form of financial abuse. So what happens is, is that abusers will either ruin the credits of the people they're abusing or they will literally just destroy and take the phones away so that they can't call for help. They can't have any sort of interactions with people that aren't monitored by the abuser. And if they do get away, their credit is so ruined that they actually can't get any assets by themselves. They can't get a loan. They can't open an account, things like that, which I just didn't understand. I didn't know before. And why these phones matter is that the majority of programs that assist victims of domestic abuse actually give out cell phones as a part of their work so that women can call 911 or call a family member when they need to. And it's a number that the abuser doesn't have access to or they don't own the account. What I also didn't know is that almost like 30% of these programs give out deactivated phones. They give out phones that have no working plan. But because of the way the law works is that even phones that don't have a plan still can call 911. And Verizon used to have a program called the Hope Line program, which donated phones to domestic abuse survivors, but they actually got rid of that not too long ago. But I'd never even thought about the relationship between this program that gives out phones to low-income people who have lower incomes to the impact of this program on survivors of domestic abuse. I just hadn't, I hadn't thought about it before. So I learned something this week and I wanted to share that. People who suffer from intimate partner and domestic violence have to deal with life, right? They have to work through all of these additional ways in which financial control has made it incredibly difficult for them to access really basic things that so many of us take for granted. And to your point, DeRay, it's actually not taxpayer money that pays for this. And to be clear, when we're talking about paying for this, We are talking about $9.25 a month. $9.25 a month. Let's talk about what our tax dollars are actually paying for, though. Since January 2017. Go ahead and preach. I'm just saying. Go ahead. Tell us. (laughs) Listen, let's talk about what our tax dollars have paid for in the way of Donald Trump's personal travel. I'm not even talking about defense spending. I'm not talking about this wild budget that we have had foisted upon us. I'm not even talking about these tax cuts to the rich. I'm simply talking about his personal travel to go play golf. Between January 2017 and June 1st, 2018, there has been an estimated $17 million spent on 17 visits to Mar-a-Lago. That's a million dollars per visit. That doesn't even include the $6.6 million that was spent on the first five of those visits in order for the Coast Guard to protect the shoreline on which Mar-a-Lago sits. 
Then when you add to that the $40,000 per trip that he has spent on nine different visits to his New Jersey golf club and an unforetold amount of money that he has spent on 31 different trips to his Sterling Virginia club, I am appalled that we seriously cannot give low-income people, including a great proportion of domestic violence and intimate partner survivors, $9.25 a month when he goes and plays golf every weekend to the tune of millions of dollars of our money that i cannot abide it's literally a lifeline that they're cutting off to people in need you know for nine dollars and 25 cents a month and it is appalling it is obscene and it is emblematic of the priorities of this administration like they will spend all kinds of money uh, on all kinds of useless war machines that didn't protect us from russia they'll spend all kinds of money on donald trump playing golf. They'll spend all kinds of money on giving tax breaks to the wealthy. But for people in need, $9.25 a month is too much. And so, you know, we just need somebody in office who understands what priorities actually are and who actually needs assistance, who actually deserves assistance, who actually is out here asking for not much, right? Like $9.25 a month is not is, is not unattainable. It is not hard to envision. It was a program that paid for itself. And yet and still, it's, it is not enough for this administration. So we just need to vote them out of offices, the bottom line here. They have no business there. Yeah, let this be a reminder to all of us that the people who were telling you that whoever's president really can't affect your everyday life, they were lying. Let's be very, very clear about that. Do not ever accept that lie as truth ever, ever again. Who is in that office? The people that they nominate for everything from the high court to cabinet positions, they affect how people are able to live every single day and whether or not they're able to do so in a healthy and free way. I appreciate you bringing this up to Ray because it, it was also something that I hadn't necessarily considered, um, even though it, it seems intuitive now, but uh, the relationship between access to a phone and... Um, and the and those who experience domestic violence is is obviously really important. And part of what I think about too is you, you know my, most of my work is in in prisons, and and the reality is that the majority of women who are in prison uh, have also experienced domestic abuse, right? So there's like a very clear correlation there. And and part of what I think about when I think about this story is how access to a phone uh, and access to something that would allow a a person to to reach out, whether it be to to nine one one or to somebody else, before things escalated to the point where, you know, and and we've seen many cases of this where women are acting largely in self defense for them and their kids, and and may they may you know take a man's life who has uh, been beating beating them and abusing them and uh, and their kids for for years and years, and and I, I wonder, I don't know, but I'm, I'm sort of wondering out loud what it would mean to obviously a phone by itself is not going to solve that but i wonder what role these phones can play in in potentially avoiding the situations that end up putting so many women uh, in prison unjustly when they are simply trying to protect themselves that's the news hey you're listening to pod save the people don't go anywhere there's more to come you can host the best backyard barbecue when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh. Like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. 
What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. And now my conversation with Joseph Apaku, the VP of Government Relations at Lyft. So, Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Well, Dre, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. One of the reasons why I want to talk to you today is because of the upcoming vote by the New York City Council. Uh, is as you know, uh, there's a plan to limit the number of ride-sharing app cars in the city of New York. And I wanted to get. We'll start broad. I wanted to get your take on. Uh, the legislation before I asked you a set of questions about it. Sure. So, you know, we're we're frankly pretty concerned about this legislation. You probably don't need me to tell you about the challenges of, of transportation issues in outer boroughs and in particularly in communities of color. And I, I say that as someone who has lived in Harlem, I've lived in Flatbush, I lived on the, on the border of Bed-Stuy and Clinton Hill, uh, none of which had, you know, really good access uh, to public transportation and certainly didn't have good access to to yellow cabs. So the impact that Lyft and ride sharing generally has had in outer boroughs and communities of color has been really, really significant. And that's one of the main reasons we're concerned about what the council is uh, proposing, because first of all, the proposal is, is to essentially cap all growth for the ride sharing industry. And that's it's actually a little bit more complex than that. Not only would there be a hard cap on the expansion of the industry, which would deny thousands of people who are looking for economic opportunity a chance to get onto the platform, but it also does not provide explicitly for a way for for people to be added to the platform if current drivers decide to cycle off the platform. So there's not even a guarantee that service levels will remain as they, as they are right now. In fact, it's much more likely that as people who do cycle off the platform leave and we don't have the ability to bring people back on, that service levels are going to plummet and the areas that are going to be most negatively impacted are going to be outer boroughs and low-income neighborhoods. One of the things that I've read is that because of the suicides of taxi drivers, that people feel like the ride-sharing apps have benefited from an unfair, it's like just an unfair playing field, and that the ride-sharing apps like yours are creating conditions that are hostile to the taxis in the city of New York. So I wanted to ask you about that. Well, first and foremost, obviously, we are we are horrified by the by the suicides that have happened in New York, and our hearts go out to you know those people and the family members and their friends. And we are you know more than happy to work with the council and work with frankly whoever to try to uh, to rectify that situation. But frankly, I don't think that this proposal really does anything to address that. Specific specifically and in some senses it basically recreates the medallion situation that existed a few years ago by artificially limiting the amount of people who can participate on the platform or in ride sharing specifically so in some levels it's kind of like a medallion 2.0 situation so um, we are happy to to work with the council to work with other parties to come up with a legitimate way to to ensure that the individual medallion holders who were who were, have been so significantly impacted find a way to to be made whole but i do not think that this is the way to do it and again the way that the council is currently proposing to do so would disproportionately impact the people who have only for a few years had a chance to experience legitimate transportation equity so we do not believe that this is the way to go about that I like have ideas about who I see sort of using left or driving left, but I'm trying to get a sense of in New York City, for instance, where this legislation is coming up, like what is, who are we talking about being impacted on the rider or um, driver experience side? Well, on the passenger side in, in New York City, and it's a really great question, it's really important to recognize that around 80% of rides in New York City start uh, or end outside of the central business district, and 35% of our rides start or end in low-income areas. So, you know, the all the talk about congestion, which is something that we are also, you know, we are 
concerned about congestion. It's one of the reasons why we launched this company. The reality is that Lyft is providing a significant amount of service in communities of color and outer boroughs. So those are the neighborhoods that are going to get hit the hardest by having a cap on our service. Who is pushing for the like, why don't people that seems pretty obvious to me. Who is pushing for this legislation? You know, I want to be you know, respectful of the of the council members who are trying to consider this because I'm not trying to say that this is an easy uh, easy conversation. But I think the reality is that you know there are you know taxi interests are fairly significant in New York City, and I think it would be naive to say that that's not uh, part of this conversation. And to that point, you know, we're happy to you know we've never stood in the way of any legislation with respect to other for hire vehicle industries. If there needs to be legislation to lower the costs on on, on you know taxi services or to make that process easier for them we've never stood in the way of any proposal like that anywhere across the country but to you know to essentially try to undo the transportation equity gains that have been affected over the last few years by by you know limiting the growth and again not just limiting the growth but ultimately this would lead to a diminishment of the uh, availability of rideshare in New York is just not the way to do it. Do you know how many people Lyft is like their primary source of income? I've always been interested. I feel like I meet a lot of uh, drivers who like that is that is their job. That's their main job, not their not like an additional job. So across the country, about 80% of our drivers do this on a part-time basis. Um, those numbers may be a little bit different in New York, but the, gen- the general profile of the Lyft driver is someone who is doing this uh, in their spare time to just get additional income. And that's held true ever since we've launched uh, several years ago, that around 80% of our drivers are part-time. Well, thank you. And uh, I will keep monitoring what's going on with this legislation. DeRay, thank you. Brittany, Bob McCullough cannot be the county prosecutor in St. Louis again. He can't. No, no, no. No, no, no. Hashtag bye, Bob, all day, every day until it's done. Absolutely. He's got to go. He's the reason why Darren Wilson never got indicted. Um, And his ties to a a lot of things wrong in St. Louis are very, very clear. It's become very clear over a number of years. We definitely need to change in my hometown. And now the next conversation is with Wesley Bell, who's running against uh, Bob McCullough hoping to unseat him and Brittany I don't know if there's a more important election right now with state attorneys happening in that region you know the person who is your district attorney can determine a lot and we absolutely deserve progress that activists have been working for for a long time in St. Louis and I'm really really hopeful that Wesley can take pick up that mantle and take us forward now here's a conversation with Wesley Bell Wesley thanks so much for being able to join us today on Pod Save the People man my pleasure man thanks for thanks for inviting me now, you are running in one of the most important races to me and Brittany, which is why we wanted to have you on the pod. And it's important not just to us, uh, but important to so many people in the region where uh, the protests began and that birthed a movement. And I wanted to know, why, like, what's your why? Why are you running and why you? I mean, as you know, I, I'm, I'm from this area. So I grew up in, in North North County. I, uh, I had the criminal justice department at St. Louis Community College. So I had already been involved in, especially with young people, getting them involved in in, in, the, in their community, which I think is important, especially with a lot of young African-American kids. You know, one of my philosophies is that if you're going to make sustainable change, you have to have external pressures pushing from the outside, but you also need internal pressures at the table that can implement those uh, decisions, reforms, et cetera. And to me, I've been practicing for 17 years I know that office. I know what what they do. I know the kind of practices that they implement that are not do not help our community and not just North County. They do not. They're not good for St. Louis County. And and I think it just takes somebody that can bring different factions together because that's what it's going to come down to is coalition building. If we're going to move in the direction of criminal justice reform, we got to get buy in from all different stakeholders and individuals and entities and organizations throughout St. Louis County. And you need somebody that's willing to sit down and 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 talk and listen to everyone. And how do you describe the role of the 
the county attorney to to people who aren't familiar, who know the current incumbent and think mm-hmm. that that person is not necessarily good, but don't really know what the role does. Right. And, and, you know, and that's part of the problem is that as I've knocked on like literally thousands of doors, a lot of people don't know what the county prosecutor does. And so the county prosecutor's office processes and prosecutes every misdemeanor and felony in St. Louis County. The county prosecutor makes the decision on uh, what the charge is, if there's going to be a charge, how severe the charge is going to be, or potentially diversionary programs in lieu of a charge. And so there's there's uh, approximately 60 attorneys in that office, uh, so it's not a one-person one show. Um, but but there is no bigger impact on criminal justice, on the criminal justice system and potentially criminal justice reforms than the St. Louis County Prosecutor's Office. When you talk about impact for changing and affecting lives, like everyday lives, like re- regular people, we're not talking theoretical and and um, and things of that nature. We're talking about everyday people. There's no bigger impact than the county prosecutor's office, which, you know, <laughs> What are you hearing? What issues are people bringing up to you? Like, what are they saying about the issues around criminal justice or about this role? I think people get it. People finally get it. You know, I've been practicing for 17 years. And so I've known that there were issues. I don't think, to be fair, I don't think anyone knew the scope of what was going on. I I think, you know, your average citizen, even your average attorney who might be in three or four courts. So, you know, what's going on in those three or four courts. But until the Department of Justice uh, did their uh, investigation, I don't think anyone knew the scope of this, not through just St. Louis County, but through the region and and the country. What I measure um, um, as far as people getting involved is, well, okay, that's fair enough. A lot of us didn't know the scope, but what did you do after? What what was your role or, or how did you advocate for these kind of reforms after? And you're starting to see an awareness, an awakening to the need for criminal justice reform and the debilitating effect that mass incarceration has on on our community as a whole. Uh, we're, I mean, we're talking about oftentimes nonviolent offenders are people who may not have haven't committed an offense, but can't can't make the bond and lose every and they lose everything i sat in with the bell project when they did their uh presentation and, and they had a uh, uh an event you know educating people and it just talked about people uh, a, a young man who missed his high school graduation because he couldn't make the bond and the charge was essentially a misdemeanor and, and ended up getting dismissed but he couldn't graduate he doesn't have his education now which significantly increases the likelihood that he will he will reoffend. And and we're seeing people aware of aware of the need and and Ferguson is, is probably at the heart of, of of that awareness. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod to the People. Uh, hope that people come out and support you and let us know anything we can do. Hey, thanks for thanks for having me, Ray. And keep up the good work, man. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.